church. Can you hear me? Sounds like you can because I can hear me. <laughs> okay. Let me... Uh... Well, I wanted to introduce this sermon with that particular song uh, for a couple of reasons. One is to introduce you to a little bit of our, the ancient language of Israel and also because we're going to be talking about the one God. But let me begin by saying, I think this song is also important for another reason, to, particularly in today's circumstances. As the Church of Jesus Christ, we need to stand united with Israel during this time of trouble. Um, lies are being propagated about Israel, and they're the same type of lies that have been propagated throughout history. And we need to understand that when we hear those things, we need to really be careful and investigate what's going on. We need to stand for the truth as a Church of Jesus Christ, and we also need to be sure that we are praying for those who are innocent, no matter which side they're on. It doesn't really matter which side that you may hear, them, uh, hear the news from. So I just want to make that statement just because we are in a time of, of deep trouble for the world. But that's not really the reason I introduced this. I wanted to introduce you to the one God. We're studying the creeds, uh, particularly the Apostles' Creed which is a Western creed. And two weeks ago, the pastor gave us um, a few reasons why understanding and confirming the creeds are important to us as Christians. One of the reasons why the creeds are so important is because they tie us to the history of the church. Now, our church is only about 90 years old, which is actually a long time for churches these days, for churches to last. So we should we can at least be commended for that, but we've gone through our ups and downs and our rebuild period, and we just finished that last week. So that's a, really just um, kudos to the pastor and to the people that have worked so hard to make that happen. But we're part of a denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, that began in 1887, so that's even older than us. And it had a very specific ministry that we were looking uh, to achieve, and that was to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, particularly in areas that had never heard the good news. I'm going to put my glasses on so I can only see one version of my uh, message here. <laughs> Double vision, that's why I do that. But our history goes back even further. 
we have, our history goes back thousands of years, and we're part of a movement that was started by Jesus Christ and was brought forward to today by apostles, who are heralds of the good news, by prophets, by teachers, by preachers, theologians, and even emperors. And as the good news spread, it became important for us as a church, the church in total, to be able to say, what does it mean when I say credo, or I believe? The creeds established what I would call a baseline of the faith, a baseline of belief that it was a set of statements that every one of us could, could confirm and say, yeah, this is what it means to be part of the Christian community. <clears throat> These are confessions that are shared by Protestants like us, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and at least in part by other Christian traditions. That is, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, then you need to be able to at least affirm what the creeds are saying about God, Jesus, the Spirit, and the church. And that's why we're learning about the Apostles' Creed. Of course, there is not just one creed, there are multiple creeds, but our focus in this series is going to be on the Apostles' Creed, except for today. <laughs> today I'm going to deviate a little bit because I think there's an important thing that we need to step back from that particular creed and see in other, two other statements of faith. So my goal today is to introduce you to the first part of what we call the Nicene Creed, which has a slight modification and expansion from the Apostles' Creed. Let's see if I can get the slides working. Okay, so I recognize this deviates a little bit from what the pastor had set out to do with the Apostles' Creed, but I think this is going to add to our understanding of what the Creed is telling us. The Apostles' Creed begins with the following, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Well, that, and that's on the left-hand side of your screen there. The, Apostle, the Nicene Creed, which is actually a little bit older than the, in its finalized form, begins as follows. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Now, they're pretty close. I have to admit, but there are three key differences here that I think are important. The first is that the Nicene Creed begins not with I believe, but with we believe. And that's important because the Creed is a common confession for all Christians. It's not just my personal belief, it is our belief. When I say we believe, I'm expressing a common statement that spans time and the whole church. And it's not just me, it's what all of us believe. And I declare that I'm part of a larger body of believers that transcends just our local church and denomination. Well, a second change in this creed, if you look on the right-hand side, is that it says, there's an additional clause there that says, of all things visible and invisible. And that's an important reminder to us that what God is doing in the world it's not just about us and what we can see. We're part of a larger creation, and God is doing something that includes more than what I encounter on the day-to-day -day basis. God is active everywhere, whether we see him or not. And God's doing things that I may not be aware of. 
But I think the most important part of the Nicene Creed that I don't find in the Apostles' Creed is that statement, we believe in one God. We often forget that our faith as Christians goes back way before the time of Christ, before Jesus entered into this world, and long before we established those creeds. As a Christian, I'm an heir of the promise through Abraham. And Paul tells us this in Romans 4, 16 to 17. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, Abraham's, descendants, not only to the heirs of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God with whom, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence things that are not. That is, we believe, when we believe in Jesus the Messiah, we're grafted into a very ancient tree that is rooted in the promises of Abraham. Promises that were given a thousand years before Jesus entered history. Now to be clear, our heritage is rooted in ancient Judaism. And we claim, along with others, that we are the heirs of the promises that God has made to them. And that means our confession must be based on the confessions of ancient Judaism, which of course one is the Shammai. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. First of all, if anybody knows Hebrew, I beg your forgiveness, it's been 20 years since I studied that language. But that means hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Baruch Shem Kavad, Malkudo Leolam Vayed, blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever. This is called the Shema, which literally means hear. This is something that's important for us to hear. And it's considered the most important confession in Judaism. For observant or faithful Jews, it's the most important part of their prayer service and is recited twice a day as, as a commandment. There's a tradition that the last words you should say in your life are the Shema. And you're to teach them to, their, to your children to recite it before they go to sleep at night. It was important enough that when, someone, when a scribe asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment of all, Jesus answered, the first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He quotes the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. This confession speaks to the Jewish understanding of God and as such it's foundational for us as Christians. This is the way we understand God. There is one God. We inherit this from Judaism and while our understanding of Jesus may be different from what a non-Messianic Jew might believe, we still worship the God of Abraham, the God of the promise. And we confess that God is one. So that is why I believe that the first part of the Nicene Creed is so important. It roots us squarely in the monotheism, the belief in one God, that we inherit from Judaism. With our ancestors, we confess that there is one God. And that's why I kind of prefer the Nicene wording. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. That's the starting point of our faith. 
So what do we mean by this, and why should I care? There's a lot of people that believe in one God, uh, Jews, Muslims, even modern and ancient philosophers really believed in one God. You could go to ancient Greece and people would say, well, yeah, there's, even in a polytheistic religion like Greek or Roman polytheism, they would say, well, yeah, there's multiple gods, but there's really one supreme being, one supreme God from which all the others come from. In fact, I was at a, a, a round table years ago, right after 9-11, where we had people with different views talking about um, the situation of 9-11 and the topic of God came up and one person in the audience raised their hand and said, well, it's good to see that all of you believe the same thing. And we have people from different faiths there as well. And there was this pause in the, in the panel and one person even looked away and uh, Father Levitt, who's the, he at the time was the, the head of St. Mary's Seminary, said, I, I need to respond to that. He says, we don't really all believe the same thing. The key is we need to be able to say what we believe and not kill each other. Pretty important when you consider the situations today. So we do believe, have slightly different beliefs when it comes to the one God. But it does matter what the creeds say. And what really matters is not what they say, but how they impact me. In Janine Brown's book, Scripture is Communication, she says that one thing we have to keep in mind is when we study Scripture or any document, even if it, if it includes the creeds, words do not just say things. They're not just words that we hear. Words actually do things. They actually make a difference in who we are and how we behave. When, when we speak the words of the creed, they're not just empty words and they're not just intellectual words. They call us to change who we are and to remold our lives around the confession that we are, are making. The one God who we confess as Lord created all of us and calls us to himself for a purpose. So the words we recite in the creeds really are calling us to do something. So for the rest of this session, what I'd like to do is I want you to understand what we mean when we say one God, maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. What do we mean when we say one God and why does it matter to me? Well, the world of the New Testament was not so different in character than our world today. There is no doubt that we have more science, we have a greater population and technology, the world interacts more today, uh, but there were a lot of similarities. The Roman Empire was highly polytheistic and syncretistic. Two big words that really just mean everybody kind of had their own idea of what, they, what God was like, and the Romans didn't care at all. All they cared about was that we kept the peace, and also that you affirmed your allegiance to the emperor through worship, interestingly enough. Images of God such as Artemis, Isis, or the emperor were spread throughout the Roman Empire, and people affirmed multiple gods. And today it's very similar. We have people that have all kinds of ideas of what God is like. Um, but for Jews, this was not acceptable. There was one God, and that was the God of Israel. He had revealed himself to them, and this God had covenanted with Israel, 
and entered into an agreement with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. You know, and when Jesus quoted the Shema and those two great commandments in Mark 12, he certainly affirmed what Israel's confession was. He was quoting the Shema. But Paul also kind of does this indirectly in Romans where he affirms that the God of Abraham is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. There's one God for both because there's only one true God. That is, he's the one God for everyone. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul rejects this idea of eating food offered to idols because you can, he says, you cannot take what is offered to idols and still claim to worship the one God. The, so the Shema is a fundamental confession of who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, or an alternative translation of that, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. We can't claim that it's all the same God. There is only one God, and that is the God of Israel. The fact that there is only one God, though, is the bedrock of both Judaism and Christianity, and as Christians, we need to affirm that the God of the Jews is the same God of the Christians. We trace our roots to Abraham and the covenant of the promise. And we also do trace our roots to the other covenants, the law included, because God was active in those. And that's why we have two Testaments, too. We have the Old Testament and New Testament in our Bible. What we call the Old Testament is the Jewish scriptures. And the God that it speaks of is the God of both Jews and Christians. We, sh we can share the Shema as a common confession, and that's why the Nicene Creed begins with a similar statement. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Well, you're probably thinking, well, that's fine. I believe in one God. But isn't Christianity different than Judaism in that we believe that God is also three in one? Well, yes, we do teach that there are three persons in the Godhead. The early church from the apostles on recognized that God was doing something unique in this world with the arrival of Jesus Christ. And they recognized that the spirit that filled the church was distinct from the Son since Jesus stated that after he left, the spirit would arrive to teach them all things. And at the same time, they recognized that the Father was distinct from both the Spirit and Jesus. So the church debated and argued, how do we describe the one God if he's present in these other manifestations? Well, I'm not going to get into the details of that. It took Augustine only 15 years in writing about the Trinity before he finally was able to come to a conclusion about it. It's clearly a complex topic. <laughs> but let me suggest a couple things about God that might help us here. First, both Jews and Christians confess that the Father is the source of all things. When John's gospel begins, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word we translate in the beginning is arche, which doesn't just denote a beginning in time. It denotes a source of all things, and that's what God the Father is. He is the arche, the source of all there is. Second, in Second Temple Judaism, at the time of Jesus, there was a variety of views of, what, of, ha of how this one God actually existed. And some were very simple, some were very complex. But in all cases, the confession was still, 
God is one. And finally, Christians and Jews do believe that this one God isn't just distant. He interacts with us through divine agents, one of which is God himself. And we can see that this throughout Scripture. Abraham encountered three men at the Oak of Mamre who came and brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you ever see that famous Eastern Orthodox icon of Abraham and the three visitors, there's this implication that we're looking at a picture of three and one, of God. But the point here is that he does interact often through himself and through what we perceive as divine messengers. Hagar met a messenger in the wilderness in Genesis 18, or in Genesis 16 and also in 21. And after she encountered this and was rescued by this person, the scriptures say she named the Lord who spoke with her, Ur El Roy, for she said, I have seen God and remained alive after seeing him. Isaiah In the prophets, Isaiah saw him in the temple in Isaiah 6, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. So God often comes to us in ways that we can perceive him and in ways that we can interact with him. I could go on and on, but my point's pretty simple. The God of Judaism is not so de- and Christianity is not so distant that we can't encounter him here and now. This God interacts with his creation and his people regularly. And as a Christian... I understand that he has done something in a unique way through Jesus Christ. So when I hear the words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, or is one, even as a Gentile Christian, I can affirm those words. I can recite the creed, I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I'm affirming the same thing. We believe in one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Judaism, and the God of Christianity. And our affirmation of the truth is especially important, I think, in a time like this. Well, if this is the God that we confess, then what does the Bible teach us about this God? If you remember nothing else, I want you to remember these three points. And I'm going to elaborate on these. There is one God of creation. There is one God who makes promises and is faithful to fulfill them throughout history. And there is one God... And the one God is the only one we should worship. So let's dive into these three points a bit. Oh, let me go back. The first point is there is one God of creation. The Bible begins with a very simple statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God begins his creation with a simple statement. He speaks. He says, let there be light. We hear the same type of thing in the Psalms. In Psalm 33, 6 to 9, where the psalmist says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle, and he put the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The prophets say the same thing. Isaiah reiterates this in Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who He is the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings princes to naught 
and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one of them is missing. Okay, I get it. God made it all. God's great. What does that mean to me? Well, listen, in Romans 1, 18 and following, Paul tells us that nature itself reveals God to us. Paul tells us in this passage that when we reject this revelation of God and creation, we invent a God that's really nothing more than a reflection of ourselves. In essence, we're declaring ourselves to God, to be God, and defining goodness based on what we want and desire. And that's what idolatry is. It's us making a God in our own image. And a God that will satisfy all of our own desires. And it doesn't take long before we realize that this leads to all kinds of sin and debauchery. And Paul elaborates on that in that chapter. And as a consequence, the true God withdraws from us due to our sin. But while we've corrupted creation and ourselves collectively (laughs) through abuse and sin, there's still a fundamental goodness that we can find in creation. Anybody that takes a hike up to Annapolis Rock, I think my hiking days are long past, but (laughs) um, in Western Maryland, or goes to a national park and just sees the beauty that God has made in creation can testify to that. It reflects the goodness that God has built into creation. And we can see it as a testimony of his work. I have a friend who I worked with years ago that I stay in touch with. He lives in Florida. I stay in touch with him on Facebook periodically and you know, became one of his Facebook friends, so I get messages whenever he posts. And he posted a, a video, I guess about a week and a half ago, of a, a picture of that traced the orbits of the planets. And it formed this beautiful picture that was just a, a very beautiful way of seeing how the universe was organized. And he made one comment. He said, science is art. Now, he's an atheist. And I sat there looking at that, and, and I thought, well, if science is art, why can't he and others see the artist that stands behind it? We are part of God's creation. If God made us in his image, then we bear a responsibility to him to care for this world that he has made good and that he owns. He's the owner. We aren't. The Bible teaches that we are the stewards of this world, and therefore we should govern it with care. And that's more than just being ecologically conscious, which is a good thing. We we need to be willing to say, I'm going to take part in the goodness of creation and recognize that we as Christians, as as God's children, need to reflect the goodness that God made into creation and that he has placed in us. So a major task of Christians in terms of creation is to reflect the goodness of God to the rest of the world. And that brings me to our second point. That's called, by the way, that's called uh, creational monotheism. Monotheism is the belief in one God. So when you see those titles up there, um, I'll try to explain them. The second point that I really want to make is that 
it would be easy to say, okay, God's the creator. He made the universe. But then, you know, we don't see him, so maybe he just backed away from it. And he has nothing to do with the world after that. That's a view that emerged into prominence in the 17th and 18th centuries. That's a view we call deism, but essentially means that if there is a God, he may have started the world, but he's so distant, he doesn't really get involved in it as we know it. But that's not the God of the Christians, and it's not the God of the Jews. We worship the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God who revealed himself to all persons via his creation. And we don't believe that God created arbitrarily, or that is cre- but that is creation is intentional, and it's going somewhere. It has a purpose that God has built into it, and there's a purpose in everything that God does. We may disagree on what that purpose is, but we do agree that God is active and moving history towards a final outcome. That's why we call it eschatological monotheism. It's God is moving towards a final resolution. And to understand that purpose, you've got to go back to Abraham again, the father of Israel, to see what that purpose might be. While creation was made good, humanity has corrupted it. And when God covenanted with Abraham, he made several promises to him. But the main promise he made was that the world would be blessed through his seed. And that promise was carried through Abraham's descendants, through the patriarchs of Israel, and ultimately through the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. God's actions and purpose are to restore the good of creation to what he has made it to be. And the advent of Jesus as the Messiah is the revealing and justification of the God of Abraham and his intention. His advent, which we'll be celebrating pretty soon, uh, is the good news of God as revealed in Scripture. Paul talks about this in Romans, and he declares that the resurrected Jesus, who was descended from Dave, King David, was all according to the Jewish Scriptures, and is part of, and that is the good news, that God has intervened in our world. Paul traces the faithfulness of God in his letters in Romans, as it, which, by the way, we may be doing a series on that next year. But in Romans 3, 24 to 26, said God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, Christian. The God of Abraham is moving history towards its final culmination. The cross of Christ and the resurrection is the pivot point in history. It's the revealing of the God of Israel. This is not some distant God. This is a God that's actively engaged in our world and fulfilling his purpose and plan for creation. The New Testament ends in the book of Revelation with this beautiful vision of unity between God and his creation. And in Revelation 21 to the 22, both chapters, we see a new Jerusalem descending, and the declaration that's made is that the dwelling of God is now with humanity. And as the vision progresses, we see that life for all flows from the throne of God. God's ultimate goal is to be united with his people and provide life for them. The Shema does present this when it says, Blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever. 
So I'm looking at the clock, and I know I'm running out of time. Uh, but let me make a very simple point here. The God of creation is also the God of history. He's establishing his kingdom through his people. And that means that we can trust him in all circumstances. No matter what situations you may be going through, he's there with you and will provide the grace you need. It also means you're part of the kingdom of the day and you bear a responsibility as a member of that kingdom. Finally, there is one God that we worship. It's called cultic monotheism for those who are interested in that. But there's only one God that we as believers should worship. And we do worship the God of Abraham. We also believe in Jesus. But belief in Jesus does make us different than Judaism. I'll have to affirm that. But Paul testifies that in Romans 9 to 11, um, he begins those three chapters with a lament for his people. And in that lament, he says, all these things God made were made for them. The covenants, the patriarchs, even the Messiah. But one thing we don't often include when we read that list or think about, sometimes we just brush over it, is, is that the worship of God comes from Israel. And it all belongs to Israel and comes to us through, the, through them. Well, I'm not going to get into Romans 9 to 11 by any means, but at the end of that, those three chapters... Paul actually has this outburst of praise where he says, Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor, who has given him a gift? And Paul, as he, as he presents this, he's actually referring to Isaiah 40, 13. He actually just opens up with this outburst of praise to God now, no matter what you think about this section, it's interesting that Paul moves from an argument, from the intellectual idea of what God is doing in history, to an outburst of praise. And that's what our knowledge of God really should lead us to. We're not created just to know about God. We're created to understand and to worship God and serve him as the living God. And that's why... When Jesus presents that first verse of the Shema, he follows up with the third part, which is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. Now, Paul follows that outburst of praise with a very simple command where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Same word for worship that he actually started with. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the language of cultic monotheism, the worship of the one God. We're to actually bring ourselves and sacrifice ourselves to God. I think there's four things in here I want you to, to know, and I'm going to skip down to that. Four characteristics of what true worship is. First, as a follower of the one God, we're to present ourselves to him, presenting our bodies as living sacrifice. Worship doesn't involve receiving something from God. It involves giving ourselves to God, not just in weekly praise with singing songs and listening to a sermon, but in service to the God in all that we do. As God's been faithful to Israel and to us in the sacrifice of his son, 
We're to live sacrificial lives for others. How each of us does this may vary, but this is the nature of worship. Worship is a giving of ourselves. Well, secondly, we can't do this on our own. I can tell you from experience, it simply doesn't work. We have to be united with God in the Spirit to live lives of obedience and service. That's what true worship is. We unite ourselves with God in the Spirit. However, when we worship and serve God through the Spirit, God is doing something. He's transforming us. He's changing us. He begins to transform us and to mold us like clay into something worthwhile, a vessel of honor or a vessel of mercy. Life with God is a life of perpetual transformation. We're constantly changing, and God is transforming us more and more into his likeness. And we need to recognize that when God takes us through hard times, well, maybe his goal is to change you into his image and likeness so we can serve others as his children. True worship involves a willingness to be changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. And finally, true worship involves discernment. I often hear people say things about God and their experience that they attribute to God that's just not consistent with his character or with his word. So in our, mod- in our modern culture, we all want a God who's willing to comply with our vision of reality. But while we may profess to worship the one God, if we, we're just being culturally compliant, we're really not doing anything that a pagan wouldn't do. Our task as the worshipers of God is to learn to see the world as he sees it and to stand with him when the world goes a completely wrong direction. We can't serve him rightly if we don't see the world the way he sees it. So true worship involves discernment. That doesn't mean we're always going to agree in how worship and service takes place, but it means we should always be seeking God and the good of others. And that's why, in all things, we depend on his grace to overcome our own imperfect understanding and attempt to do his will. Well, in conclusion, since I'm well out of time, let me just make a statement here. In this short period of time, I've tried to present you with a picture of the one God, the God of the Shema, the God of the creeds, the God we worship. But I've only scratched the surface. There are others who have other ways to do this, and if I dived into death, we'd be here probably past the next, uh, next service that's scheduled here. But I want to make a, just a quick statement about maybe a, another way to view this. And that is one that comes from Ben Witherington down at Asbury. He says there's three aspects of God that really define who God is. And that is that God is light. These all come from 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is life. He's the source of true life for us. And God is love. So if that's the case, then my challenge to you is to embrace the one God, the one God of the Shema and the creeds, through faith in Jesus Christ. Show the world his light, found in creation and history and worship. Bring his life to the world, to all of creation, through your life and your history, and learn to love creation as an act of worship, even when it's hard to do so. Show the one God to the world, because, frankly, the world desperately needs him. And that's why we confess we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Let's pray. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever. Teach us, O Lord, to love you with the whole of our lives and to confess you to a dying world that is in desperate need of light and life and love. Teach us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love one another. Mold us, O Lord, into your image through the working of your spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.